Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So Amy is, if you've been around for Emmaus, you've spoken here three or four times, I think, over the last few years and always brings such a powerful word to us. So if you don't know Amy, she's the senior fellow at OCA, Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, and she is committed to speaking around the world, making the gospel credible, proving how the faith, the, the faith, the Christian faith, the God of the Christians uh, is a credible God and his gospel is credible. And that's taking you to Parliament, to the White House, Capitol hill to universities all around the world and so when we looked at the topic of wisdom we couldn't think of anyone better to come and share with us so thank you for being here can I pray for you and then I'll give you this mic which works so Lord Jesus I thank you for Amy Lord Jesus I thank you for the hours of preparation that she's put not just into this word but into her entire life and ministry and God as she comes and she opens up the book of wisdom I thank you uh, for the message that she's going to bring I pray that you would open our ears Lord Jesus would we hear you Lord thank you that your gospel is credible and today would you um would you equip us to be able to go out with a message of that credibility? Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me today. If you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, I think it's going to come up behind as well. And we're going to read a few verses from the book of Proverbs. And we're going to begin in chapter 8. And I'm going to start at verse 7. And this is wisdom speaking. So my mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. And then just um, skipping on a few verses from verse 27. I was there... When he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters could not overstep his command. Verse 30, I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. There's loads we could read, but that's a few little highlights from chapter 8. So I wonder if any of us in this space this morning ever feel that a lot of the sort of situations and dilemmas we find ourselves facing in life aren't necessarily covered by a good kind of knowledge of the Ten Commandments or even a good sort of standard biblical, ethical approach to life. Isn't it true that the complexity of life 
means that learning rules, learning moral principles, and even actually acquiring more scientific knowledge or even acquiring sort of historical knowledge, it doesn't actually always help us in the practicalities of life. To not make a mess of your life, you need something else. And the Bible calls that something wisdom. The book of Proverbs envisages wisdom as not at all the same thing as information or even bookish education or the accumulation of sort of facts or theories. The book of Proverbs sees wisdom as values, character, relationships. Wisdom is a conversation drawn on experience around how the world actually is and not necessarily how it always ought to be. Albert Einstein said this, wisdom is not a product of schooling, but it's a lifelong attempt to acquire it. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is speaking in the first person. Wisdom is I and me. And she says in verse 10, I am more important than gold, silver, jewels or rubies. And I'm greater, she says, than anything you could possibly desire. So if we think about what this world desires, whether it's wealth or power or fame, wisdom is more desirable. There's something really profoundly true here, isn't there? Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, more important than the actuality of life's circumstances is the ability to flourish whatever the circumstances are. So wisdom isn't just moral goodness, it isn't just theological knowledge, it's not less than those two things, but, that, but those aren't enough. It's not enough to be pr- people of principle or vision, we need wisdom. You see, the rules and the facts aren't going to be enough always to answer the questions of our day-to-day lives. Who should I marry? Should I move here or should I live there? Should I confront this person or should I hold back? What is the right school or university for me or for my child? Should I take a risk in this situation or should I play it safe? The Ten Commandments, the rules of right or wrong, and lots of information and data can't offer us the answer to any of those questions. Wisdom is more important than anything you could imagine or desire. Verse 11 says, nothing you desire compares to wisdom. Let's think of it about a few definitions. Verse 14, wisdom says, counsel and judgment are mine. That word, which we might translate insight, is the Hebrew word, bina. Wisdom is knowing how things really happen. Um, I have twins who are, who've just turned 17 and they're learning to drive right now, so you can pray for our family. It's a great joy, as you can imagine. We've already had um, one sort of time of 25 stalls on the main road of our village and our, our lovely, gorgeous son just getting out of the driver's seat and slamming the door and walking away. So uh, driving is a great joy. When they were much younger... Um, I was away, I was um, in, actually in China, I was part of a team of theologians helping to train um, the underground, the leadership of the underground church in China. And I got a call from my husband and he said, darling, the most terrible thing has happened, please pray for me, I've been called into the school. The twins were in reception 
And a few weeks earlier, we'd been having a conversation about Christmas, and they'd been asking me about Jesus and Father Christmas. Now, I thought I'd done a really good job in this conversation because I'd gone through a long process of explaining how Christmas is all about Jesus. And even Father Christmas knows that because he was actually a friend of Jesus who lived a few hundred years after Jesus. And he gave presents to poor children in his city. He lived in modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. And, you know, he's just this amazing, amazing follower of Jesus. So Christmas is all about Jesus. My four-year-old child interpreted this deep, profound conversation in the following way. He went to school the next day and he told everyone, Father Christmas is dead. (laughs) This caused crying in the corridors. And my husband was summoned to be absolutely shellacked by the very formidable female head teacher. (laughs) Counsel and judgment, insight, wisdom is knowing how things really happen. Verse 12, wisdom says it it dwells together with prudence. That word in the Hebrew is mzimot. And that means to notice little distinctions. Wisdom is knowing how things really are in a given situation. Some of you will know if you've heard me speak before the story of how a small team of us um, were sort of led by the Spirit and had the opportunity to smuggle Bibles into Afghanistan and get into the military headquarters of the Taliban and give them Bibles in their own language and meet the top brass, the four senior leaders of that movement, one of whom who'd been praying for years that he could have a Bible. I haven't got time to tell you that, that story. But on the way to that event, we had to fly into a neighbouring country. There was a civil war still in Afghanistan. The Taliban had three quarters of the country. So we flew into a neighbouring closed country. Now, in in that nation, there were lots of listening devices and Christians are really oppressed. And we were concerned about the Bibles that we had hidden in our luggage. So we just arrived and we were in the hotel. And we were in, the three of us, which is a team of three, were sitting in the boys' room together and we were praying. And the phone rang. My husband, who's here this morning, answered the phone. Hello, hello. And um, uh, there's a woman on the end of the phone. She says, I hear that three of you have just landed from the UK in our city. And he didn't think this was odd at all. He said, yes. She said, "Um, I wonder if you'd like a more secure place to stay than where you're staying. He said, "Uh uh-huh, yes, yes. She said, If you're interested, meet me in half an hour at this landmark in the city, which is called the Circus. It was like this big Soviet kind of building in a huge square. Meet me there. My name is Angela. I'll be wearing a green dress. Click. So Frog thought this was the most normal thing on earth and told us the team. So we got in a taxi. We went to the, meet the, to the square, huge empty square. There's a woman in a green dress. We go to her. We say, are you Angela? She says, yes. She says, come with me and um, follow me. We're going in the car. So we all get into the car and only at that point do we begin to think, is this okay? (laughs) Now, I was 19 at the time. If my kids did this, I'd be really, really annoyed with them. So we're in the car, we're driving and we're saying to each other, is this okay? At which point she turns around and she says, I've told you my name is Angela. Let me introduce you to the driver of the car. His name is Aslan, which in Turkmen means the lion. If any of you read the Narnia books, you know Aslan is Jesus. 
So at that point, we thought, okay, it's fine. If Aslan's driving the car, we're all right. <laughs> Prudence, to notice the distinction, to be able to know how things really are. Verse 16, we're told, by me, princes govern and nobles rule on earth. Wisdom is, what should I do about it? I'm in a situation where I need to make difficult decisions. Being a person who makes the right call in a difficult situation, that's what wisdom gives you. A friend of mine um, is an amazing leader in actually in that Afghanistan area, borderland of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And he'd been on a trip into Taliban-held territories called Daniel. And he was with a driver and two colleagues. They'd been there to share the gospel. They'd seen many people turn to Jesus. And now as they were driving, they were being chased by three Taliban vehicles who were all heavily armed. And this is Daniel's words of what happened. He says, I'm in the car. We're being chased by three cars with weapons. The river is on one side of us. And across the river is another mountain. We are high up and we keep driving until the road runs out. The Taliban are getting closer. I said to the others, this is the last day of our lives. Let's pray. Then as I prayed, I opened my eyes and I saw Jesus in the river. And he called to me, Daniel, don't be afraid. I'm with you, I will hold you, come on. I asked my friends, I told them I saw the Lord, he's in the river, he will hold us, don't worry. Then the driver nodded and drove the car off the ridge into the river. It's very high, the river is very deep. I saw many doves surrounding us in the car and we reached the other side of the river. The driver asked, what shall we do here? And I said, you can just change gear. (laughs) He says, we were praying and then we were on the other side. The Taliban reached the end of the road and looked in amazement. Wisdom is knowing what I should do about a situation I find myself in. A few other crucial things to know about wisdom in Proverbs. Wisdom is personified. Wisdom is I and me. And later on, she and her. Wisdom is envisaged by the writer of Proverbs who was writing mostly to a group of young men about what it might mean to grow in wisdom in that era. Wisdom is envisaged as not a matter of mastering mastering rules and principles, But it's a love affair. It's falling in love with a woman. That's the closest analogy that Solomon could come up with. We're called to fall in love with wisdom. A little bit about the structure of the book of Proverbs. If you're reading this book in your personal devotions, it's actually quite tricky to to read it if you just take verses in isolation. Chapters 1 to 9 are an introduction, and from 10 onwards, there are hundreds of Proverbs, sort of one-liners that are really pithy. Chapters 10 to 15 have principles by which life usually works. Things like, if you work hard, you will prosper. And if you're lazy, you will be poor. 
If you raise a child well, they will be responsible and they will love you. Tim Keller comments, if you have a conservative mindset, he means small c conservative, and you read Proverbs 10 to 15, you think, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is how life works. But from chapter 16 onwards, Proverbs begins to include lots of exceptions from the principles of how things usually work. Some people, says Proverbs 10 to 15, live according to God's law and they end up having a really difficult life. Some people work hard and remain poor due to oppression. Some people raise their child right and when they grow up, that child goes off the rails. And Tim Keller says, if you have a liberal temperament, you know, yeah, life's messy. Wisdom says, if you won't admit there is a pattern, a grain to the universe, there are principles, and you want to make up your own rules to life as, and, and just follow on those own rules, that's a path to misery, and you are a fool. But if you think you have cracked the code, you know the pattern, and if you just do these right things and slot everything into place, you're going to have a perfect life. You're a fool. Wisdom says you can be a conservative fool or you can be a liberal fool. Proverbs covers both. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> Chapter 8 of Proverbs is really, really key to the rest of the book. And I just want to say one more thing about it until we, uh, and then delve into one proverb in particular, just one verse in particular. So verse 27 of chapter 8, wisdom says, I was with the Lord when everything was made. I'm sure you know that in the Bible there are two creation accounts in, um, the, books of in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. And then now you scroll forward in the Old Testament and here in chapter 8, we have another creation account. Now, the context of the ancient world is really important to grasp here, to understand how profound this creation account is. You see, in the ancient East, societies had their creation narratives that viewed the material world, this physical world that you and I live in and breathe in, things we can touch, the mountains, the waters, everything, the stuff of life. Eastern societies viewed creation as an illusion or an accident. Western ancient civilizations also have creation accounts of the world. And all of the Western ones, apart from the biblical creation accounts, envisage creation as being the result of a power struggle. Whether you look at the Old Norse or the German or the Sumerian or the Babylonian or the Egyptian or the Greek or Roman, all of those creation narratives have a battle between gods and giants and this god and that god and creation sort of happens in the context of conflict. Only here in ancient literature is there an account of the world created not as an illusion, not as an accident, and not as a byproduct of a power struggle, but created through wisdom. 
God is envisaged as surrounded by light as an artist. And in chapter 8, verse 30, wisdom says, at the creation, I, the Hebrew word, we've got it here translated rejoice, I frolicked. I know your motto at Emmaus Road is pray, play, obey. That's right, isn't it? Play. Right there at creation. The Hebrew word is shakok, in overwhelming joy that causes wisdom to frolic, to dance, to rejoice. God designs and creates the world as a place of joy, a place of beauty and order. And so the idea of wisdom is that God has created the world according to wisdom and in joy. And that means there's a fabric and a pattern and a beauty to the grain of reality. And the call of wisdom, wisdom's voice is calling us, is drawing us to live in the flow of that beauty and that joy that was there right at the beginning. And um, in, in opposition to that, foolishness, the opposite of that, is going against the pattern or grain of creation. And that leads to breakdown and emptiness and disharmony and frustration. So how does Proverbs teach us? Proverbs references familiar stories and characters that we're meant to recognise and identify with. So... Stories give us meaning, don't they? Um, in, the olden, in the olden days in the UK, there was this idea that if you were familiar with literature, you could be a, a sort of smart, a wise person who could navigate the world. And we obviously, we all still have to study English literature at school. It's an overhang of that. It's the idea that stories give meaning to everything. If I were to ask you, how was your holiday? You might not give me a spreadsheet with the breakdown of the data of how many hours of sunshine there were and what the costs were of every meal that you spent. You're going to tell me a story or stories about it. So um, here in the UK, a few decades ago, we needed to, to know the stories of literature, whether it was England, France or Germany or Russia. Why? Because on a practical level, once you've read Dickens, you know something about human selfishness. You know something about how power corrupts and how people oppress other people and create and maintain poverty. You might read Tolstoy, and if you do, if you read Anna Karenina, you're going to learn how to recognise the attractive but selfish rogue. However romantic, however much they promise, your radar is up for the narcissist coming onto the horizon of your life. Today, we're more likely to watch films and there are these recognisable characters and plot lines that emerge. Here are some of the archetypes, the characters in the book of Proverbs. The fool, both male and female versions. The predator, both male and female versions versions. The sluggard, the lazy person, the scoffer, the person who mocks. The friend. And in the portrait of the friend, there's a focus on the vulnerability you experience in friendship. The invitation then of Proverbs is to fall in love with wisdom. 
to fall in love with wisdom. And that's an aspect of what it means to walk closely with Jesus, to grow out of being conservative or liberal fools, to grow out of being people who can't recognise the danger of the narcissist or predator or scoffer or mocker, to raise a generation who see how the world is and long for how the world was created and the beauty and truth and joy that caused wisdom to frolic. It's a beautiful invitation. So we're going to just have a quick look at one particular verse from Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25 and delve in to to this text briefly together. So this is one of the Proverbs from chapter 12. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Interesting that the next verse says, the righteous choose their friends carefully. Anxiety. We're living in an age of heightened anxiety, aren't we? Whether it's uncertainty around the economy or fuel prices or jobs or pensions or even meaning in life. We've got anxiety perhaps around our elected leaders who don't appear to know what they're doing and the shifting sands of the cultural moment we find ourselves in. The Guardian put it like this, we're in the grip of an anxiety epidemic that predates Trump's presidency and the pandemic. Indeed, says the Guardian, we have become so collectively consternated that a 2016 analysis led by the World Health Organization estimated that without more treatment, 12 billion working days will be lost because of anxiety each year. And the study estimated the cost to the global economy up to 2030 as being 925 billion US dollars. And studies today show that anxiety spreads and trouble and, and travels. You know how when you see someone yawn, the mirror neurons kick in and you yawn, and me talking about yawning makes you want to yawn. Now, we've known for a long time that yawns and smiles are contagious. But now it seems that anxiety is contagious in the same way. Researchers at the University of California found that if someone in your visual field is highly anxious and expressive, either verbally or non-verbally, there's a strong likelihood that you will experience that anxiety as well and it will negatively impact your brain's performance. A different study found that observing someone who is stressed can have an immediate impact on your nervous system. 26% of people showed elevated levels of cortisol just by observing someone else as stressed. Secondhand stress, like secondhand smoke, is contagious, but it's more contagious from a romantic partner than from a stranger. You're 40% of people pick it up from a romantic partner. Researchers found that even watching a stressful event on video made 24% of people show a stress response. It puts a new light on watching Netflix before you go to bed. Of course, there's a a massive difference between um, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety and the heightened cultural anxiety of, of this moment that we find ourselves in. 
the scholar and Friedman argues that anxiety has become the dominant factor of the modern world. He talks about how um, in the West, institutions used to play a role of absorbing our collective anxiety. Institutions like healthcare systems, justice systems, and political systems. But as all of those iconic aspects of our society have been shaken, so our confidence in them has been undermined. And they are no longer able to absorb our national anxiety in the same way that they used to. Now I want to suggest there's another side to this same coin in our cultural moment right now. A dark iteration of this desperation in anxiety for certainty. A dark iteration of this is the digital preacher, Andrew Tate. If you type into Google, who is the most common name to follow that question in the world's most um, largest search engine, at the moment, the most common name is Andrew Tate. If you don't know who he is, he's a former kickboxing champion and social media star. And he is capturing the, the, the attention of a generation of men. Why? He is offering a set of solutions to the situation we are facing in the West right now, including anxiety, and he is preying on a desire for certainty in the rising generation. He calls for things like self-discipline, hard work, the rule of law, and he's recently converted to Islam. He is a misogynist who's been accused of involvement in human trafficking and the sexual abuse of women. His TikTok videos have been viewed 11.6 billion times. He is incredibly popular. His bravado, his materialism, and his certainty are winning disciples in our anxious age. He is offering a word to anxious hearts in our culture right now. It's time for us as the Church of Jesus Christ to wake up. Because the answers that Andrew Tate is offering won't cut it. Wisdom says he is a fool. People are chasing after certainty and words that bring hope. Tate can't offer what Proverbs says we need. Anxiety weighs down the heart, says chapter 12, verse 25, but a kind word cheers it up. What does wisdom say to our anxious age? It says we need a kind word, a living word, an encounter with the word that brings life and joy. Joy that is equivalent to wisdom who frolicked in the joyful beauty of the creation of the world in chapter 8. What does it mean to receive in your anxious heart a kind word that cheers it up? That word might be specific or personal. I experienced this um, just in the last 18 months. Um, I had an extremely traumatic experience. I shared a bit about this when I came last time to Emmaus Road. And as a result of that um, I needed to have um, therapy. And I was on a really amazing therapy journey for over a year. 
And one particular moment in that journey, my therapist had a word which was just so, so key for me. I had a real kind of breakthrough. And if you've been through therapy, you'll, you'll know what a breakthrough feels like. And in that moment where I just felt this, this sort of burgeoning recovery, the first sort of glimmer of hope of recovery, one of my friends, who I, we don't live in the same town, you know, um, she's a dear friend, she had gone on Etsy and she'd ordered me a water bottle and she'd had some words printed on that water bottle with my name. And that just arrived in the post as a gift to me at exactly the right moment as the words she had printed were the words that had brought breakthrough. That word on that water bottle sat on my desk and cheered my heart when anxiety stalks. Proverbs says, anxious hearts need a word, a kind word that brings cheer. Now in the prologue to John's Gospel, chapter 1, John's Gospel bases that initial prologue on the creation idea. You remember? Okay, now John is actually taking the creation account of chapter 8 of Proverbs and he's applying it in his Gospel. John takes the idea of wisdom personified that we see in Proverbs and he combines it with the idea of the Greek logos, the, the, the word, and he says, Jesus is it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is telling us Jesus is the wisdom that personified in Proverbs is spoken of. John is telling us that the word, the logos, the wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the only one and only. Anxiety, says Proverbs, weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. We need Jesus, the living word, an encounter with him and our anxious hearts to meet us, not just in this cultural moment as a church, but to meet him personally. Is your heart weighed down with worry? Do you need to hear and encounter the living word, kindness personified in the person of Jesus? An encounter with wisdom incarnate. Solomon imagined falling in love with a woman. That's what becoming wise would be like. The New Testament encourages us to, to realise wisdom entered space-time in history in Jesus and we're invited into a lifelong relationship of love with him. An encounter with wisdom incarnate means a relationship with the living word speaking to our anxious hearts a lifelong romance with wisdom, a still small voice in our daily life, a word that lifts anxious hearts in this place this morning and in this nation. That is the invitation. And all around us, alternatives are being peddled. 
the alternative of self-orientation, materialism, that Andrew Tate offers, or self-realisation and self-expression and self-centeredness that, that other big voices of this day offer, that promise hope and happiness, but are a path to misery, because they go against the grain of the beautiful pattern of the Creator who made us to be joyful. Jesus The living word invites us to receive that kindness that cheers the heart in our anxious age. We're called to welcome him, to deny self, to trust him, to grow in wisdom, to live life in all its fullness, to experience the glory of God shining from our every pore to begin to have a fundamental clarity about the orientation and the flow of our lives, flowing in his goodness, beauty and truth, following the pattern of that frolicking creator, flowing from him, delighting in being loved by him. So I want to invite you this morning to fall in love with wisdom, to walk with Jesus, to hear and receive his living word this morning, to let that kindness cheer your anxious heart right now, to receive his word and to listen to him for words that will cheer anxious hearts around us. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. I invite you to stand right now. And um, what I'd like to do, if this is okay, is... We're going to take a moment and turn to the person next to us. I just do apologise if you're a raging introvert. You might want to just kneel down and have a posture of private prayer now so you don't have to talk to anyone. That would be fine. We're just going to take a moment and put this into action. Let's invite Jesus, the living word, to give us words for each other. Words of kindness and words of truth, perhaps prophetic words, words of knowledge that will cheer the heart and strengthen us, his people, in this anxious age. Should we do that? So I'm going to invite him to come by his spirit and then we're going to take two minutes and just turn to a couple of people around you and begin to prophesy. Just speak a word of truth, the living word, kindness. If God gives you a prophetic word, speak that. If he gives you a word of scripture, speak that. Is that okay? Okay, so Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Lord Jesus, we invite you, the living word, to come. And we pray right now that you would speak to and cheer and lift up anxious hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's turn and do that for for two minutes.